Welcome back to Libya Matters. It's been a while. If you've just found us, welcome. I'm Ilham Saudi, and I'm one of the hosts of Libya Matters. Today, I'm joined by May Thompson, one of our co-hosts. We thought we'd begin the season by taking stock of the past 18 months and by giving you a taste of what to expect in this season. As you'll have just heard, this season we're talking about all things women, peace and security. And we'll be bringing you a compelling conversation with women on the front line to help us think not only about the importance of upholding the WPS agenda, but also how to overcome current challenges and barriers to women in conflict and post-conflict settings. We've spoken exclusively to Libyan women and women from the global majority, including those who've been imprisoned, tracked, spied on and attacked for the work they're doing. And we're so excited and privileged to bring these conversations to our audience. Since the last season of Libya Matters, a lot has happened in Libya. The political process has been ticking on, rumours of elections are swirling, the UN Independent Fact-Finding Mission published a damning report on the state of human rights, we've seen the appointment of a new SRSG for Libya, the ICC has indicated that it aims to complete its investigations by the end of 2025, there's been an intensified crackdown on civil society, and not to mention the catastrophe in Derna and eastern Libya in the wake of Storm Daniel and the collapse of two dams, a consequence of decades of negligence and rampant corruption. So given all of this that has happened and is happening, why is women, peace and security the main focus of this upcoming season? Thanks, May. I think that question is always the one that kind of I love to answer and I hate to answer because it's always, oh, this is all this happened. Why women? Why now? Um, And it's a bit like a wider conversation of, oh, we're doing with politics. Why human rights? Why now? And I think this narrative of kind of sequencing priorities or thinking something should be tackled first before you talk about others. And I also don't think that you can separate anything that's happening in Libya from women and from peace and from security, mainly because women are, are part of the demographic, but also part of the solution. And so this kind of idea of sequencing that we deal with women at a specific time is part of the problem. Uh, it's also not a competing thing, right? You don't have to tackle one or the other. Actually, one of the biggest problems we have in Libya is the, you know, the unintentional, undeliberate inclusion of women. And so it always becomes a box-ticking exercise. And so it's really important for us to really take a step back, especially because of everything you've said, not despite of it, right? Because there's a political process happening, because there's rumors of elections, because there's a catastrophe where women are disproportionately harmed, because human rights always impact women worse. Um, So because of everything you've stated, it's even more of a reason to do this. And answers itself, really. And I think it's important to really take a step back and question why we do this um, question in the first place and how that possibly feeds into holding back not only kind of the women movement or the WBS agenda, but human rights more widely. Um, And so I think it's, it's absolutely the right time and it's always the right time to be talking about these issues. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, this fits into our wider work as well. You know, Libya Matters is brought to you by Lawyers for Justice in Libya. And this is something as an organization that we've been thinking about or trying to do for a long time in terms of mainstreaming um, sort of the rights of women throughout all of our work. But it's something, and I'm sure you can speak to this more, but something that actually is very, it's very challenging, right? And, you know, as you said, it comes up in all of these issues, but the way that it's addressed or even the way that we speak about the participation of women, there is still a long long way to go. 
when we were speaking earlier, you were telling me about that, like the first, actually one of the first programs that we tried to create was like exclusively like around women, right? Yeah, I think we had, it was sort of centered around, again, another conversation of this kind, probably with a donor who is, you know, questioning whether it was the right time to look at women's rights in Libya. And so this phrase that came out at the time, which was all rights are women's rights. And so what are you even differentiating? Um, But I think that in itself is also was a bit of a naive categorization by us at the time, because obviously, yes, all rights are women's rights, but there are specific ways in which those rights are important to women and they impact women. And bringing that gender perspective is is really important. Um, And I think, you know, part of the reason why it is important to stop and take stock of how well we're doing with these things is because there isn't a single person you're going to speak to in policy, in government, in donors, candidates, the public that won't say women's rights are important. And of course, they need to be part of the conversation. It's how we do it. That is really the question of this series and the question of the reflection we're trying to have here. Um, Because it's very easy to say, yep, we have a political process. We need to have 20 women at the table. Done. We've done that, right? And I think you know, as we were putting the season together and thinking about the topics we want to cover and why we should be covering them, it really stemmed from the central idea that if we're actually going to discuss this and work on these issues, it's really, really important that we are self-reflective, self-aware, recognize that there's more that we could do as women in this movement, as LFJL, I'm not talking about wider women, um, I'm talking on, our, on behalf of ourselves, of our team, um, because it's really important that we do this honestly and do it well, because it's so easy to do it tokenistically. And one of the ways in which we're doing this, by by trying to do it really honestly, is by introducing a new role. We have, of course, our new strategic gender advisor, Marwa, another Marwa. (laughs) Yeah, we're struggling with how to distinguish between the two of them, but their voices are very distinct. So you'll you'll get to know both Marwas, um, well, you'll get to know Marwa Mohammed more deeply, and and Marwa bin Abdelazak will joining us um in later episodes yeah so i think that's been you know getting her insights you know for, for this season of the podcast but also for all of our work right so i've been working quite closely with mara on sort of reports and briefings that we're putting together and thinking okay maybe this isn't distinctly a women's rights issue but how do we get that important gender lens into all of the work that we're doing um and i mean something that comes up quite a lot and we were speaking about it is the issue of like panels we've had a policy as lfjl for a long time of only speaking on panels where there is a, a truly even split um between men and women but it does often and alham you'll, you've been invited to speak on way more panels than i have but it does present often like a number of challenges mm-hmm. right no i think that's that's you know that's one example but yeah i mean on on marwa it, it has been very humbling having her in the office because i think we did think we were doing well um on gender, but we clearly can do a lot better and, and we intend to. But yeah, the example you gave of, of panels, you know, it's just a, it's a, it's a really, I think it's a very visual way to understand some of these struggles because you'll have an event and someone will write and say, oh, you know, we would like to have Ilham or, or Marwa or May or whoever from our team on the panel. And we're like, okay, who else is on the panel? And you'll see that it'll be, you know, one woman and five men or four men and we will say constantly, sorry, we don't sit on panels that don't have, well, actually we have two, two things, that it has to be 50-50 men and women. And if it's specifically on Libya, it has to have at least 50% Libyans. And the response is always, well, if you don't accept 
then there'll be zero women on the panel. And somehow it's my problem that they can't research and get more women on the panel. And it's very difficult in that situation where, you know, you're really passionate about cause that is a really great um, potential audience that is not normally accessible to you. So you want to reach it. It's really hard for you to decline that. And then you fall into the trap of maintaining this narrative, right? And so examples like that, or, or for example, they'll say you're the only woman who knows about this topic, which is as flattering as that is to one's ego is, is factually incorrect or that there is no translator budget or all these kind of logistical impediments that have a much higher cost in the long term. Um, and one of the things that I've said, you know, in one instance where I, I accepted is I, I said, I'll only accept if I can make an intervention at the beginning about the panel's composition and how that's problematic. Now, I know that's potentially a fudge, but I think it is important for us to keep tackling that. But it comes up in lots of other ways, right? Where at the moment we're planning quite a lot of, um, you know, trainings and mentorships with with women, with, with women's activists and things that come up um, and will come up in many countries, um, you know, that are Muslim or Arab or um, that the women that we want to attend because they have the right skills or they want to learn the right things will require a chaperone to travel. And it took us years to explain that concept to donors who are predominantly um, from, you know, Western, white, ex-colonial countries. And so you'll say to them, we need a budget for a chaperone. Like, oh, well, then maybe these are not the right women if that's what they need, right? And you end up having the conversation of, well, what does inclusion look like if you only have a room of a certain type of woman with a certain type of family and certain type of values and cultural pressures that are different and um, and I think we were all guilty at some point, at least myself, I was guilty at some point of falling into that trap of saying, well, then maybe they're not the right fit because I've been conditioned in some ways in my education to think that way as well. And so there's a lot, again, in the spirit of being honest about the struggles of doing this work properly, but there is a lot that, you know, I, we, I need to pause and just check my responses to requests that I'm not accustomed to. Yeah, and it brings us back to solidarity as well, like genuine solidarity. I think this is something that came up with a lot of the women that we spoke to is about, and you mentioned it earlier, it's so easy to be tokenistic when we're talking about the genuine inclusion and participation of women. Um, and solidarity often comes across as this like fluffy word and, um, you know, it's not, solidarity is more than just a feeling, right? It's it's action and that's something that we're doing and um Trying to do. <laughs> trying to do. Um, so we have a, a new project that's sort of started when last last year yeah. on the Women, Peace and Security agenda, but a large part of that, and it was so important that there was this genuine cooperation with grassroots women's organisations. And it's important for us, you know, as a one of Libya's more established, I guess, civil society organisations, knowing the history of you know, civil society in Libya and that it's only really since 2011. So a little over 10 years is not a long time. Um, so Libyan civil society is still very young. How can we then be bringing these women in to provide that sort of mentorship and training mm. in, in a way that is genuinely sort of equitable and collaborative rather than just, oh, well, you know, we're going to pick 10 women and, and show, them a, show them a PowerPoint and, and then that's that. 
Yeah, I think the best definition I've ever heard of solidarity is solidarity is deference. And so it's you saying to the person with whom you want to stand in solidarity, what is it that you actually need from me? Right. Instead of us assuming it's training, assuming it's financial, assuming it's access, assuming it's all these things. And so even designing this project was really actually quite fascinating for me because it was so counterintuitive. It wasn't the normal project you would design where you have a list of activities. A lot of it was, we're going to spend a year talking to women to figure out what they actually want from us, right? Then we'll design the project. And trying to get a donor to give us like that kind of time was not the easiest sell. And and it's an ongoing kind of conversation to demonstrate, quote unquote, like success or, but, you know, a big part of this was just spending time going, let's just map and understand what the, what the sort of landscape is of women's organizations in Libya, what they are telling us their needs are and what their priorities are. And then we sit back quietly and let them take the lead and we provide the support. And it, it's, been a, it's been a lesson in humility. It's been a lesson in genuine solidarity. And I think it's enriched us already as an organization infinitely Um, And so although we talk about us mentoring, I think, you know, in a lot of instances, it's the other way around that's the mentoring. And I think that's what builds a movement. And if we want to talk about building, you know, civil society or human rights movement in Libya or a women's movement or contributing to building that, that a lot of it is about making space and listening more than it is about telling and teaching. And so that's that's been an education for, 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 for me, at least, in, in how we do things better and how we understand solidarity. Yeah, um, yeah. And that's the case, you know, not only talking about um, Libyan women or women working on Libya. And we've learned that through this process of putting this new season together. We've, for the first time, I think, actually, on Libya Matters, we've spoken to people working on, you know, a really wide range of different country contexts in different regions, some taking a more sort of global approach and it's something that I wanted to address, and you mentioned it earlier, is that we spoke exclusively to women um, from the global majority or the quote-unquote global south. I mean, and even this term global south is associated to post-colonial discourse. So I think the, the both of us really prefer the term global majority. Um, so when it comes to the WPS agenda, why are global majority perspectives so important? I don't think that differs so much to my first answer about why we're doing this, right? Because I think First of all, I mean, it's in the name, it's the majority, right? It's the global majority. And so it, it's, it's a very odd conversation to be having it without that being a dominant voice in it. But I also think it's not the WPS agenda. And I, I have a problem with the, with the word agenda and how that's used because agenda has been so um, rede- like redefined as a word to always be negative, right? And so politically speaking, especially in a country like Libya, the fact that it's called the WPS agenda, that it comes from the UN Security Council, feeds itself so much into the counter narrative against the substance of the work um, that the male led political elites in Libya love to play with. And so this is an agenda that's come from the Security Council, drafted by them and imposed on Libyan, this conservative Arab Muslim country. And so part of making sure that we even define WPS, we owe a duty to even within the agenda, even within the movement, to show that it's not a singular movement. And the agenda, again, quote unquote, like impacts the global majority more significantly. Um, It's targeted at that part of the world in a way. And so it's really important to be reclaiming that process and giving it back to the majority. 
Um, and so I think it's really vital that also, again, you know, this was a deliberate decision um, to do this. And it is intended in no way to kind of diminish from the, the very strong women's voices on these issues from, um, from the quote-unquote global north. But I think it is important to acknowledge that the issues we're discussing impact disproportionately women of color and women from the global majority and to address them head on. I feel like when we when we say the global majority, there is almost this like homogenization to assume that because these different countries or regions are experiencing similar struggles, which they are. And of course, as we've just said, there's so much to learn. There's this, and maybe we had this assumption or myself had this assumption as well, that there would be a, yeah, a very, very similar perspectives when actually what we found from speaking to this women, that even from inside the movement, that there is, you know, various perspectives, various sort of opinions or ways of thinking, um, and, and this comes down to something as well, you know, intersectionality that we spoke about with Tusa, um, is that women, you know, being a woman is just one part of, of one's identity and the work that they're doing. Um, and that really came across. And, you know, as I said, even from the women that we've spoken to, it's, we didn't all agree. Like it's not, and that's what's been so interesting about it, that while we have dedicated a whole season to it, is that there's no sort of, one size fits all approach when you're talking about narrowing it down to one agenda or one sort of set of um, conditions almost. And there's also the angle, you know, there's also a, a clear interesting conversation happening within the season intergenerationally as well. Um, and I don't mean that necessarily by age, but more by the kind of generations of the movement. Because although, you know, civil society in its more traditional language, like definition in Libya, yes, started around 2011, but the women's movement has been around for a lot, lot longer than any of that. And, um, you know, whether it's at the grassroots level, whether it's in struggles at homes, you know, all that is part of the movement and women claiming their ability to work, to leave the home, to do all that stuff. Just because it's not in a structured movement doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And so in Libya, that movement has been there for a while. And it was, you know, really interesting um, and really, for me, soul searching to be talking to some of, you know, for me, some of my heroes in the movement who've been who've been doing it and know far more than than I do, to be questioning our approaches and that kind of intergenerational discussion is really fascinating, both intergenerationally between the women, but between the movements. Yeah, absolutely. We have so much to learn from the different generations, the different women that have been doing this work throughout the ages, but also in different areas. This shone through, for example, in Hasina Safi's episode on the situation following the Taliban takeover in Afghanistan, on Shadi Sada's episode on gender apartheid in Iran, and also the episode with Kavya Shok, who is the executive director of the NGO Working Group on Women, Peace and Security. For the listeners, I hope this is whetting your appetite. Um, but also in, in terms of themes, we've also covered eliminating violence against women and girls, um, the rights and challenges facing Indigenous women, the feminist movement in Libya, male allyship, and the participation of women in politics. I know that whenever we, we talk about this list of issues, someone always raises an, an eyebrow at male allyship. So do you, want, do you want to say a little bit what we mean by that? Yes, and it came up with like quite a lot of the, the women that we spoke to. And we ne never necessarily like put it as one of the points that we wanted to discuss with them. It just kept really coming up around, you know, it's really important that you have men who are fighting this fight with us. Mm -hmm. And for me, something that stands out is when we were speaking with um, 
Chubai, and she was saying that even though men can, again, like you said, it's easy to be tokenistic, and they're always going to say, of course, we support the inclusion of women, of course, um, we support women's rights, but then they will intentionally, not intentionally, but they will go and do something that then shows the, the opposite, right? So you're talking specifically about a meeting that happened where they were in a conference all day and, you know, the men then went and had a side conversation in the evening when the women weren't available, they weren't able to leave their rooms or go out. And then the next day the women would come to the meeting and they say, oh, well, we've already actually decided about this. And it, yeah. it's not something that men are always thinking about. Like there are so many small nuances that are excluding women from the process. It's not always this, you know, like the big, obviously you have the big issues, for example, like SGBV or like violence against women, but it's sometimes like the subtleties that are, that aren't always obvious. Like, and we've spoken about this a lot with the online violence sometimes, like it's not always, you know, we're living in such a patriarchal society globally and, you know, in, on more of a domestic level that addressing these, issues and I know with this conversation started with like male allyship but it's about what does that what does al- genuine allyship actually look like I mean that and that's the kind of point I was trying to coax because it is not um our wonderful male listeners telling me you have a mother and a sister and a daughter and therefore you understand what we're going through but that of course you care about women because you're the son of a mother um that's not allyship <laughs> Um, and I think it's important. It, it kind of goes to the point that we were talking about earlier on solidarity. Um, it's the same thing for those who want to support the women's movement. Understanding what its needs are is by being deferential to the women. Um, and I think that's a really important part when we're talking about things like the political process in Libya, where the discussions around women's participation are predominantly initiated and um, led by men and then the outcome is provided to the women right and so a really great great in the it's a good example example of it is you know situations where um, they will say well we've allowed 20 seats for women you know what you know we have allowed this for you right we have created this for you we think that's great and I think it's in their minds that is being, in, you know, supportive of this or showing that they're being supportive. But, it, you know, it goes back to the same concept, you know, whether it's being an ally or, or standing in solidarity with something, there is a, a large degree of listening and being deferential. Um, that example you gave of women, I mean, I remember very clearly, and this was a UN-led process in the Libyan political dialogue forum, of which I was one of the 20 women that were there you know, that there was a, there was a moment where there was no decision, you know, there was a, a, like an impasse and there was no decision being made. And so the person from the UN that was facilitating the meeting decided that they're the most wise. I mean, that's problematic on a multitude of levels, uh, from a gender perspective, from an ageist perspective, from a culturally almost orientalist approach to this. So I'll take your wise men, you Arabs kind of think that's what you prioritize. Um, but I think, you know, there are all those kinds of solutions where when we raised it with him as the women, he's like, but a lot of men were excluded from this. I'm like, yeah, but the wisdom came from three men. Um, and so I think those kinds of conversations are where real allyship or solidarity shows up. One of the biggest takeaways for me, I think, 
is that actually, and it's a positive one, surprisingly, is that although we're surrounded by so much anguish, not only of women, but entire communities, that the dial is slowly shifting. I think it would be very easy, having worked on this season, to be in despair of all, you know, the, how terrible the situation is. But actually, all of the women we spoke to left us with messages of hope and encouragement. Um, for example, like when we were speaking about quotas, there is tending now to be more of an acknowledgement or an acceptance that this isn't enough and that women's participation isn't simply a box checking exercise. Um, and that also that women shouldn't be held to a higher standard simply for the fact that they are, are a woman. And this came up, for example, with Nora quite a lot. Yeah. And I think it, it's also, um, you know, in, in, in what you just, in what you just mentioned on, on sort of, you know, the positivity of it. I, I want to take a moment actually to say that we've, we've reflected on a lot of issues um, and spoken with people from, from a lot of countries in this series, but I want to, to be sensitive and say that between the time we recorded the majority of the episodes and certainly the time we planned the season and when it's being aired, obviously the world has seen the hideous um, atrocities in, that have happened in, in, in Gaza and, and in wider um, Palestinian territories that very much highlight the impact and the, the significant impact on women of, of, of atrocities of this kind. Um, and I, I wanted to just emphasize that it was not an oversight in not including this as a topic. And it's obviously something on which we're engaged and horrified. And we will, we, we, we I'm sure, we, I'm sure will cover in future episodes. All that's left to say is thank you for being here. Thank you for your continued support. And we hope you enjoy the season and we hope that it provides as much food for thought as it has for us. If you enjoy Libya Matters, please do leave us a five-star review as it really helps us to keep growing. To let us know what you think or to suggest any guests or topics for future episodes, please contact us on our Facebook page at Libya Matters or tweet us at Libya Matters Pod. Libya Matters is brought to you by Lawyers for Justice in Libya and produced by Damiri Media. This season is hosted by Ilham Saudi, Marwa Mohammed, Marwa Ben Abdul Razak and May Thompson. It is produced and edited by Al Shaybani with sound design and mixing from Hafid Jrebi. This season of Libya Matters was made possible by contributions from the LFJL team, including Alexandra Zua, Rahima Abdurrazzaq, and Hasnal Jamali.